Another special guest on the Emerging at Cricket podcast with a book out at the moment. The uh, usual welcome, I think, is uh, appropriate here, Nick. We have sports writer for The Telegraph, among being an author as well, contributor at many other places, New York Times, The Economist, New Statesman, and ESPN Crick Info. Uh, His new book, Crickonomics, The Anatomy of Modern Cricket with Stefan Shemansky. Tim Wigmore, thanks for joining the Emerging Cricket pod. Thanks for having me, guys. Great to be back here. Can personally attest, uh, fantastic book. Did enjoy it uh, twice <laughs> in the end, reading it sort of on my way to and during a, a stay in Vanuatu where, you know, there was some emerging cricket going on. So it was all kind of topical, which I think tied in rather nicely. Uh, scrubs up really well. Uh, how long was the journey? I know it's not your first rodeo in, in the book game. Uh, what was the, the process for this one? Uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks very much. Um, so, yeah, Stefan is the co-author of Socconomics, which a lot of you, your listeners might might have heard of, uh, which is sort of a free economics for for football, I guess. Um, and yeah, so we wanted to do a similar one for, for cricket. Um, so it's probably it was a couple of years from from first having the chats to to um, completing it, and ending up with a book that you've that you've you've read. Um, and yeah, it was about basically between us coming at it from different angles, but trying to come up with a lot of questions and then seeing the ones that we, we could answer. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's, it's good to work with an academic because you get a, just a different perspective and stuff. And, and that's, that's quite good and refreshing and stuff. And yeah, we've, we looked at a very eclectic range of range of topics uh, related to all aspects of cricket and uh, yeah, plenty of, of stuff about associate cricket in there as well. Definitely makes it easier for us to, to talk about it. There is quite a big, emerging cricket theme not only are there a number of chapters that focus you know I think the German Afghan chapter in particular is is probably the one that would stick out to most people but a lot of it does relate the ideas of say the Asian Cricket Council being so important for associate members in one particular chapter the emergence of Thailand uh, the lessons that maybe New Zealand could have on associate boards what was it like sitting down with with Stefan what were the meetings like in 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 putting this all together because I imagine it's a it's a rigorous process yeah it was it was a lot of zoom calls he's based in in Michigan so it was a lot of zooms of this is during during COVID as well so a lot of a lot of zoom calls which probably helped to uh alleviate the boredom a little bit of of COVID and um yeah it was obviously academic um, they are rigorous. Um, unlike us journalists who will write anything, uh, academics have to prove and, and triple prove everything, which, which 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 was a good a good time challenge. And um, it kind of means that what hopefully what we've ended up with is stuff that really does stack up, I guess. And we've really we've really thought deeply, and we had um, at least actually some of our what are now our favourite chapters of the products of a lot of arguments. Which um, yeah, it's all it's all good and healthy. I think one thing. It's kind of interesting to me. I don't know how much uh, Stefan was into cricket before this, but I do kind of wonder, you know, if you start writing a book, looking in great detail about the economics of something, how much do you kind of need to know about the actual sport? Yeah, you do know. He's, I mean, he's, he's, yeah, he's a big cricket fan. He he grew up in in England and stuff. So yeah, you know, he, he's pretty well versed in cricket, obviously not, you know, he's not as immersed in the day-to-day of it as I am, but he's, yeah, he's he's both got a good good knowledge of it, and also has a certain actually there's a value in being a certain outsider in in some ways actually, and kind of looking at how absurd some some bits of cricket are, and really it doesn't need to be need to be this way. And actually, sometimes that outsider's perspective is, is is very very helpful in terms of um, enlightening on topics. Notice throughout, and we touched on it sort of at, at the top here, but 
there definitely seems to be a pretty globalistic theme throughout the whole book and not necessarily in the the chapters that we would probably highlight as being um, particularly emerging cricket focus. And I, I know that uh, at the end, there's a, a huge chapter on the influence of uh, Afghans in, in German cricket. And there's a couple of incredible stories of uh, asylum seekers and people venturing, you know, thousands of kilometers, just not only to find a safe space, but to find a community in, in terms of cricket, what was it like sitting down and and, and talking to to some of the some of the people involved in in aspects like that? You know, you you do sort of catch up and and chat in depth with an, a number of people, but how powerful is is? I mean, it came across really well in in the book, but how powerful was it coming across to you when when talking about you know the example of of someone like an asylum seeker coming to Germany and and bringing cricket with them? Yeah, so Arif Jamal, we we we, we talked to who um, fled Afghanistan in 2009, age 14, um, and had a just incredible journey through through woods for several days. Um, and and you know after they 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 got to Turkey. Um, so so actually they, to go back, they yeah they they started they travelled to to Qatar to to Quetta in Pakistan, and they then um, walked for six. They then walked for 16 hours to cross the border to Iran and they then kind of improvised getting on, on vehicles and, and, uh, and things to, to get into Turkey. And then they walked for days through the woods in, in Turkey. Um, and then they, they crossed the boat, uh, they, they crossed the uh, GNC, um, in a tiny boat and, and yeah, and then you get on to, to Greece and then it, it kind of continues. So just an in, incredible journey. And, um, and they, uh, yeah, they had this love of cricket with them from uh, Af- from Afghanistan, and you know when they got when they uh, um, asylum application was being processed in in Germany, they were in a basically a youth hostel in Germany, and they were actually using the internet there to um, to track the progress of Afghanistan. And this is when they qualified for their first World Cup in 2010. Um, so you do you do get a sense of the, the the power of cricket in these you know remarkable circumstances, and 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 then you have this you know amazing thing on the ground where actually it's Afghanistan has become um, an exporter of, of cricket. Um, we think of actually the history of cricket and the first two test nations that were never members of the Commonwealth were Ireland and Afghanistan. And, and so we now have cricket. It's always kind of been more than a Commonwealth game, but actually now that's becoming even, even more so and people begin to see that. And it's actually, it's quite an exciting stage for the, for the game's development where you think, you know, traditionally you, you would expect only a few nations to be kind of exporters of cricket. And now, the pull is, is so um it's become so much deeper and yeah afghanistan kind of bringing cricket to germany and the german cricket team as we know is getting pretty good and i think we'll probably will qualify for t20 world cup at some point this this decade as there's every chance um yeah that that's one of the more un- unlikely stories and it is is heartening to see that the power that cricket can have in in obviously very harrowing circumstances well just on afghanistan and i guess that region in general i, I i'm Afghanistan is kind of a, we've just seen uh, recently some news around uh, their funds coming from the ICC, uh, running into problems with with various, you know, international sanctions and, and those kinds of things. And um, so there's that side of it. But, you know, looking on the other side is in that region, the sort of Central Asia, Asia region, you've got countries like India and Pakistan pursuing cricket diplomacy and, and trying to kind of build the game that way. I don't know how much you looked into sort of geopolitics as opposed to economics, but I mean, the two sort of overlap a lot. What do you see kind of coming down the pipeline in terms of you know, the rest of that region 
sort of building upwards with cricket because obviously there's the subcontinent which is uh the sort of the heart of cricket now um how sort of how far north or you know east and west do you think it'll spread yeah so we we have this chapter on on network effects and the, the rise of asia basically which is which is examining what's happened with Asia, which which has been a really remarkable rise in the last 15, 15, 15 years or so. So um, if you look at basically the, the World Cup in 2016, uh, sorry, in 2007, which was a 16-team affair, um, there were only four Asian teams there. Um, and then, uh, yeah, in the last, in the Men's T20 World Cup since 2014, there's been an average of seven team, Asian teams out of 16 there. So the number of, Asian teams against World Cups has basically almost doubled in this in this period, and this is reflected also in the World Cricket League when it was still still kind of still running. But the um, yeah the Asian region um, had by far the, the most promotions of any of, of the, the five five regions. So something is is kind of under underpinning this. It's not just you know India, yeah India are good at cricket and and rich and powerful. We know that, but the interesting thing is how this is is filtering down. And I think I think actually the Asian Cricket Council is is a really really important and a kind of unsung hero of, the, of this story if you think of the amount of tournaments that they they do is, is a completely different level to what any other of any other any other other region does so you've had um you know under 16 tournaments and so on you have a, a really good structure of a, a lot of matches and of tournament cricket of course which is basically what replicates what you get in qualifiers for, for, for world cups and icc events um so there's just so much more cricket if you're from asia you also have you get extra funding through the the Asia Cup and even the Asia Cup itself, although the, the kind of format is is half rigged the way that India and Pakistan always played it. The qualifier in the the first stage before Super Fours, even that, even so, it's still some extra matches that you that you you can potentially get as an as an Asian country. So you almost think of like so most associates are relying really on one governing body, i.e. the ICC, and Asian associates basically have have two governing bodies. Um, so twice as much support almost. Um, and actually with Papua New Guinea, who of course are in East Asia Pacific, you know, a few years ago, they were actually angling to see if there was a way that they could join the Asian region, which they weren't able to, but the rationale for that was was very strong because you think if they were in all these, these, these tournaments, um, that would be hugely, hugely beneficial for them. Because um, I think a lot of associates, they kind of, they reach a wall where they don't actually necessarily have enough teams of their, of their standing and, you know, who they can play uh, easily as well um whereas in asia because there's there's really a, a good cluster of countries so even if you can't play full members as much as you'd like there's still a number of teams that you can play and compete against and, and gives you a platform um and i think just by the, the regularity of tournaments it means you constantly have this this kind of checker of how you're doing are you going are you trending in, in the right way or not and you look to what happened with argentina who are basically the most isolated um associate in the world and so well associate who've had a, a kind of strong cricketing history and i think one of their problems is they're just they're so far away from everything and they kind of didn't realize what sound they needed to be was and suddenly it, it was all too late it's interesting you bring that up because i think now we're seeing that push almost in africa as well where uh, a number of uh, african aca tournaments have been put up and the likes of the kubuka tournament on the women's side as well and we saw an under 19 world cup qualifier with nine teams which is unheard of especially you know in comparison to other regions the usa for example literally didn't have anyone to play in a tournament and qualified essentially by default so you know the point that you know success and, and competition breeds success and competition it's 
it, it was sort of made abundant in in what you wrote about. And not only with the ACC as well, from an organizational standpoint, there are some key figures in that organization that do have heavy associate roots. You know, the likes of Pankaj Kimji is someone who has a pretty big voice in in that um in that in that space. And you've got the facilities of, of UAE and Oman in Pankaj's case to to push these tournaments. So I mean, to move it now to something like a T20 World Cup, and that's why you're here in Australia, obviously covering the tournament and among other things that you're doing. I know there's some cool things you're doing in, in Canberra as well, outside of, of cricket riding as well. But to, to bring it to the World Cup, and now, you know, four, uh, sorry, two years from now, we're going to have uh, regional qualifiers instead of, say, a global qualifier. So it actually gives an opportunity for a PNG to uh, qualify directly to a tournament instead of having to go through uh, a global qualifier. Do you think that hypothetically would would change the the spheres of of influence and, and the qualifications would impact on on how these cricket teams are, are set up? Because ultimately the goal is to be at more global tournaments and to compete on the world stage and ultimately have that have that exposure and 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 just that that outreach to to you know as big an audience as possible. Yeah, so to to an extent, but actually, you know, as nice as it, it's great to play in World Cups and it can be the catalyst. But for for most associates, it's it's a lovely icing on the cake. But the way you improve is not necessarily by getting to a World Cup and playing three games every two years. And actually, you talk about Australia. I think Australia football is quite a good example of this. So yeah, before they were in the Oceania region, where they were basically guaranteed to get to a playoff. Every, every time because they're by far the strongest team in that but they 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 moved to the asian region because their bread and butter suddenly was was a lot more competitive those games they were playing and in a way their their path was arguably harder to the world cup but actually it's, it was better for their long-term development and i kind of see the same true in asia compared to other countries so you look, look at png you might they might be getting to every tournament which would be great for them but again what's happening in between is not a great deal then the Asian countries only qualify every other tournament because it's very competitive. Um, they might still be better off, um, actually, you know, more competitive on, on the field. Um, so I think the, the lesson here is, is very simple. It's just to, to try and create an infrastructure, a sort of parallel body. Um, and you look at Europe. I mean, Europe, actually, given the geography of Europe, you know, travel stuff is so easy. There really is a, a chance in Europe to, to kind of mimic you know, the Asian Cricket Council, if if the ECB, if England were a bit more ambitious and globally orientated, I think they'd be doing that. We could have, you know, something like what, what the ACC has, which is where you have a, you know, under 23 um, full members uh, playing against it, the, the full teams from associates. Actually, that would be really, you know, you could have an England Lions team playing, you know, maybe Iron Wolves or full Iron team and then, and then you know, four or five other teams from from Europe, that sort of competition would be a really good, a really good development tool, you know, underage competitions as well. So there's so much you can do. And, and people often say there's no time in the schedule, you know, England play too much cricket already, so do India, blah, blah, blah. And that that's all that's all true. Um, and it would be lovely to play more socials as well. But I think the, the lesson of Asia really is that there's so much you can do even without having, you know, playing having full member games against associates there's so much other things you, you can do in terms of matches at, at lower at lower levels um in terms of actually su- providing support for players and coaching and things and yeah so there's a huge amount that, that other people can do and i suppose to go back to your example of, P- of png you know there's there's always been talk of them getting involved in domestic cricket in australia and it still still hasn't happened i think in the, the one day cup certainly that would be 
that would be an outlet that would be fantastic for them. And then you have to go back to England. Um, you know, we, we know what's happened with Netherlands and Scotland in, in county cricket and how good would it be for them to 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 um to come back in, into those competitions. Yeah, it's interesting you talk about teams uh you know joining Asia and, and wanting to join Asia. Um that I had a similar conversation uh in Desmarinius in, in the sub-regionals um with with um the, the Japanese guys and and how they talked about basically being in the East Asia Pacific region is kind of a, a, it puts a limit on on how far you can go. And, you know, if if they get to a certain point, they'd also probably look to to try and maybe join the, the ACC because it's just the, you know, the gold standard of, of associate development. And I guess I'm trying to sort of think, you know, what can other regions learn from that? And you alluded to the um, the, the rigged draw and the, the fact that they're able <laughs> to sell an India-Pakistan match every tournament or at least one India-Pakistan match every tournament. You know, that certainly helps and that kind of feeds into the economics of it. But, you know, you look to the European side of things and it's a similar story. Why why is nobody over there trying to exploit the potential economic, uh, you know, uh, TV revenues that could come from it? Is is it just that the ECB is completely uninterested and because they would presumably have to be the driving uh, sort of driving power there? Yeah, so I think one of the problems for Europe is historically you've had one full member rather than than two or three, and so England being perceived as almost why do we waste our time playing these these other nations? Unfortunately, that that basically has long been the English the English attitude, um, and sort of now they're they're playing on they are playing on a bit now, which is which is great. But Scotland, obviously, they beat England at the Grange, and their award was never having a game again by that match against England ever again, uh, punished for eternity. So it's. Yeah, and in England's England schedule stuff, but there is yeah, I mean, there's so many ways. It's this well, you could, you could play England under nineteen team against an under twenty three team from the from other European countries, for example. There's ways you can kind of you can create a competition at, at a certain level, which kind of works for everybody. Um, but yeah, England of of course it's in England's interest if cricket's more popular in Ireland and Scotland, and you know, hopefully not just because they they might nick their players occasionally, but also because you know that would make the, the, the market bigger, and you know. Actually, you look at the hundred. You know, having a team in Edinburgh or Glasgow would have been a really progressive, interesting move. But it's just never really been on on England's radar. Um, so yeah, it, we're kind of banging our heads, and it's I'm not sure that much has changed England's attitude a lot over the last fifteen years. Um, so yeah, I mean, my, my idea has always been to have a, a Five Nations tournament, say during the IPL, so you know, mid late May, as a start of the English kind of international summer and it would basically be a an England Lions team but you just have to call it England and I think that way you could generate some pretty decent TV interest and you know traveling supporters you know let's face it, a lot of the people who travel for the Six Nations rugby there'd be similar sorts of people who would very happily travel for um five four five nations cricket you know go to Amsterdam Dublin whatever um so yeah there there is plenty of opportunities there there's just a lack of vision and even the way that you know all this county restructuring is is being talked about now and no one is is saying, you know, what about, you know, getting Ireland and, or not necessarily Ireland, but getting Scotland and Netherlands certainly back in the county, county structure. Um, yeah, it's just a complete, I think it's very, the English attitude towards even Ireland and Scotland, I mean, it's basically very, very kind of condescending and, pat- and patronising. And yeah, I, I was in Amsterdam for that trip, which was which was good fun, but the attitude seemed to be, you know, enjoy this week because we won't be coming back here again in a hurry, which which is a, a, real, a real shame because, it doesn't need to be that way. And actually, 
frankly, England, so England's summer schedule in terms of how they arrange their test matches, you normally have, you know, three match test series with typically one set of back to back matches, then a longer break until the, the third match. You know, you could very easily always play an ODR T20 series, you know, rotating Netherlands, Ireland or Scotland. And you just say, we're not picking any of our test guys, but it's still actually, especially with the increasing adventures of formats, it's going to be a pretty good team. And it's going to be actually useful experience for the, the next, the, the next guys to try to try to get in as well. Um, and mutually beneficial, but yeah, I don't know. I think, I think a lot of, yeah, a lot of European administrators just must feel like their heads are banging against walls again and again and again. Oh, you, you, we, we do kind of, um, it does relate to cricket tourism, which we might touch on in a second, but also um, you, you talk about the ashes and, and that kind of rivalry and, and uh, you know, <laughs> uh, some, some of the, um, some of the economics behind that. I'm just sort of thinking, you know, with the ashes, obviously that being one of the jewels in the crown of international, um, well, international sport, really, in terms of uh, rivalry and history. What can, you know, what can other teams learn, especially emerging teams uh, in terms of building rivalries and, and you know, maybe exploiting her <laughs> geopolitics to do that? You know, I think about in the Asia Cup qualifiers back a couple of years ago, Iran played uh, Saudi Arabia, which, you know, in football, that would be an absolute blockbuster. But because cricket just isn't really on the radar in either of those countries, I doubt many people even knew that match happened. So I'm just, you know, how how does cricket kind of exploit these, um, yeah, these these geopolitics or, or economic situations to to try and build a bit more of a profile? I think I think in in Europe, I mean, I I wonder if you know they very very ostentatiously try and kind of copy the the, the rugby model um, of that the Six Nations, and you know even try and yeah, you know if you you get you. You went to a rugby six nations game you get a half price or even a free ticket frankly to start it off things like that and then you kind of you, you build into something obviously Ireland versus Scotland is a great rivalry in a, in a lot of sports so there's that there should be, be something there but it's it's also a funny one because if you had a, a try series with England then the Ireland versus Scotland game would be so much bigger than just a normal Ireland versus Scotland game as well because it would kind of it would elevate it all as well so yeah, which just brings us back to the England, the England problem. Um, but yeah, it's I suppose it, if you're honest, they've got these, they've got some bilateral matches against England. Um, would they be better off a three match? Would they be better off trying to make that into into a tri series or something? But yeah, you know, I suppose they might be losing individual matches. But you know, maybe yeah, they, they've got to. It's very important for cricket. Um, you know, in Ireland's gone to to develop a culture where you know, seeing Ireland in Scotland is in itself worthwhile and you're not just waiting for the, the visits of the, you know, more prestigious countries. Um, and that's, yeah, that, that remains an eternal challenge. Um, and I suppose with the demographics in these, you know, countries, in terms of, you know, when Ireland play, play Pakistan or, or play, Bang, play Bangladesh, you know, most, most of the fans, um, yeah, they're not, they're not, they're not support, supporting Ireland necessarily. So, yeah, that, that's, kind of reflection of, of where cricket is in, in Ireland and yeah some challenges and I think yeah there's a lot more that in could do certainly. Well no, I guess it kind of goes back to the economics of it in terms of you know each of these members full members associate they're all trying to kind of look out for themselves and maybe we can uh, talk about governance uh, at, at some point but the, the fact that everyone's kind of you know out for themselves and there's very little 
coordination and, and working together. And again, this contrasts to the Asia Cup where there is a, a lot more coordination. You know, Ireland is out for themselves and fair enough, you know, everyone needs to survive in, in a, a tough sporting market. But it means that there isn't there isn't these you know as much working together as there could be, and that ultimately is is in the long term damaging everyone. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but everyone is kind of getting by till the next the next budget, and they hope to get a bit more from the ICC. You're kind of locked in a bit of a cycle, and I suppose for Ireland actually that's why getting onto becoming a full member has been transformed. There's been a lot of challenges, but just in terms of they have a regularity of fixture list, list now and they've got something that they can sell to TV companies and stuff. So for all their challenges, at least they have they have something where hopefully they can they can look a little bit further, 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 um, further down the line than just getting by the next season and then kind of then bumbling along, which doesn't in the long run doesn't really get doesn't really get, get you anywhere because you need to be, especially with, with cricket now, you know, the kind of hyper professionalization, you need to be you know, planning your youth tours and your 18 programs years in advance. Otherwise, you were just gonna, you're going to to uh, to, to slip back basically. On that, you did make a, a huge point in the book about how New Zealand came along in in terms of their structures. And I know we're getting into very four member territory here, and it's very not on brand for for what we're talking about here. But are there any sort of lessons that that associate members or even you know the likes of Ireland and and others can can take from someone like New Zealand, given the the population and just the the, the numbers of the player pool that, that New Zealand would probably have, is there anything that, I know you talk about this in the, in the book, you know, in, in a lot of depth and you probably don't want to give away too much, but what can teams learn from someone like New Zealand in this space? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question because you look at New Zealand's cricket history, you know, until the early 2000s and, you know, they, they their average position was sort of seventh or eighth. Um, and so they weren't particularly, you know, successful team. And you've got two, I think, it's like three of the last four four World Cup finals across formats. They won the World Test Championship, and they've they've kind of become the shining light. You're kind of clinging clinging onto the big three, you know, define their economics. Um, so what can everyone learn? I think the governance in New Zealand is is the, probably the best in cricket, which is not a huge bar. You know, I like to say that's like that's like big Henry Henry the Eight Henry the Eighth's. Um, his, his favourite wife. So it's not a huge, <laughs> huge, huge bar that you've cleared, but it is still a bar. And actually um, working with Stefan, he, he actually found out that academics have actually, um, across sport, have actually judged using the record to be one of the, the leading, um, you know, kind of shining light in governance full stop in sport, not just in cricket. Um, and basically the, the, the key thing there is their decision makers, their board is independent, so they're not there to represent their region. So they're not worried about, is they are enough players from Otago in, in this squad. They're, they're independent and that's such a fundamental thing, which which I think everyone needs to learn from because um, especially if you're an associate, but if, you know, if you're anyone apart from India, you cannot be afford to not be picking your, your best 11 players. And uh, my sense actually is if you compare associates to full members, it's more often, even when the players are available, the associates end up not picking their genuine best 11 because of various compromising and, and horse trading and stuff, which is, you know, clearly hampering themselves. So that's a really big thing. I think that the second thing is with the domestic game, because if you look, um, kind of, you look at counter cricket in England and actually kind of blessing in the curse is it's the best first class competition in the world, which again is not saying that, but it, but the problem that comes with is these, these counties are very much their independent identities. And if you're um, 
if you have a country where you don't have that to the same degree, you can actually build a system that suits the national team first, which is kind of what New Zealand have done, you know. So I talked with Mike Hassan, who was New Zealand coach, and he talked about how, you know, how BJ Watling was um, was opening the batting bank as a specialist bat, uh, batter for Northern Districts, but he, he'd identified him as to be new new keeper. So he just calls up the coach and then he moves down immediately, takes the gloves. It's all very, very smooth. So the whole system is genuinely aligned to putting the national team first. It's interesting to see, you know, Arn with their interpros now, they can they kind of get get to that model where it it all kind of functions very smoothly and everything's best for the international team, which is something that they were actually struggling to do for a while because Leinster were, were far too dominant, which was kind of diluting, which which kind of meant cricket wasn't as competitive as it should be. But actually, yeah, thinking what's best for the national team first, and actually when you're building from scratch now, um, you've got more of a chance of, of doing that. Um, yeah, New Zealand. They, they really say what they the work they did with the pitches and infrastructure has been so so important so you know the green they used to have these these basically play lots of first class um cricket on kind of club grounds which was kind of charming and lovely on on one level but also means the wickets to seem around a lot and nothing like what you get in international cricket um so they introduced a warrant of fitness which is basically some rigorous standards that each ground had to had to meet so i think that that's another really important uh, lesson there um and the kind of the big challenge is kind of the pragmatism and realism towards, you know, the global T20 circuit, which is something that I guess associates have had to cope with, you know, for a long time. I'm sure there'll be, you know, plenty of Dutch cricket fans will be, you know, laughing at, you know, um, the full members now moaning about, you know, mandatory release calls not not working and not being able to <laughs> get all their players when there's T20 leagues at the same time. You know, this is not a new issue, but yeah, how can, how can you kind of, manage that as best as possible and there's not there's not always an easy answer but i think some element of pragmatism and if you looked at um you know quickly for an associate it would be a complete disaster if they had a really dogmatic view that you have to play for us every game we're never going to give an exception if someone you know then got a deal and you know psl or whatever and then was faced with obviously having to retire from international cricket that would be a disaster so yeah, there's a, a few lessons. There. I think there's a lot that the countries can learn, and it does. It kind of shows what's what's possible, and it's not just, you know, a game decided by who has the most money alone, which I know it, it can feel like. But I think New Zealand they, they do show that's that's not the case, which which is which is nice, and you know, keeps a bit of the romance left in sport. But I think behind the romance is, is a you know a, te- a a story of being really shrewd and re- re- kind of recognizing their their limits and how they can work within that and there is a, a lot that other countries can, can learn from that um yeah the final thing actually is the a team you know new zealand have, have invested a lot in this they even cut down their domestic program to fund more a team cricket um and i think yeah for associates that's a really important thing and again you know what can how countries can help each other you know well you know scotland and rna should be playing each other every year there's been all these kind of failed attempts to to launch something in, in europe i'm um, in the the euro slam and, and things but uh, <laughs> um yeah is there is there a way there that you can just make sure there's there's regular good quality 18 cricket uh between you know the, the top european associates and 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 that kind of thing would yeah would benefit everybody and get a real sense of i think the path only zoom is just very very smooth like kind of people know players know where they're at and it if if you do well it follows up in a very sort of sensible way and and that gives players the best chance of of doing well when they do eventually make it to international cricket. Um, and ha- yeah, having that, that smooth system is, is really essential if, if you can get it. Yeah. I, I think Namibia is actually a good example of this in that they, every, every season now, they seem to run a, a domestic summer where they bring in 
you know, other associates or, or development sides from, you know, provincial teams in South Africa or they had that um, global T20 thing with the with the Pakistani side and they were going to have an Indian domestic yeah. <laughs> team, but that, you know, <laughs> but for, for obvious reasons uh, that got uh, kiboshed by the BCCI. But um, just thinking, so Namibia is maybe an example of them, someone doing that well, but then you talked about the issues of the, the sort of factionalism and the USA springs to mind immediately as an example on that front. But just on the USA and the New Zealand comparison is an interesting one because talking to Nate Hayes, our our USA correspondent, he talks a lot about how New Zealand is kind of, in his mind, the 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 gold standard of what um, what the USA should and could be in in cricket, and especially on the facilities front. So this is you, you talked about them improving their grounds, but you know the, the grounds that are being built in America, um, you, you know the New Zealand kind of model of having pretty small um you know charming dom yeah. domestic style grounds that seems to be one that is kind of a bit more manageable because you know there's there's a lot of talk about these huge ex you know football or baseball stadiums being yeah. converted or whatnot but yeah, in, in terms yeah. of yeah yeah but in terms of what's practical do you think new zealand model i mean ireland is another case where this you know malahide is similar to a lot of new zealand grounds um you know is, is the new zealand model of grounds maybe the future outside even associates because you know spending billions and billions of dollars on facilities that's not necessarily sustainable in, in most places yeah that's right and also you think of you know the long-term trend where's the money in sport coming from you know historically you would earn almost all your money from spectators coming to the ground from bums on seats obviously tv is becoming more and more more dominant so actually if you build a huge ground even the reward on it is not actually all that much and actually you almost within reason you're better off building something that looks fantastic on tv it makes me want to watch on on tv um so actually yeah the, the economic argument for building a, a super stadium if you're an associate is is it doesn't exist and even if you're in new zealand it doesn't it doesn't really exist beyond you know the occasional game where you can maybe convert another ground like you know new zealand do with eden park for your huge game or whatever so that's something you can learn. but yeah i know usa get a lot wrong all i'd say partly in defense of usa is that actually if you have fifty thousand well, you know, committed cricketers in the country or whatever number, and but it's quite a small number, you're actually better off being in a smaller country where the geography is more manageable than in, in USA, where it seems to me the problem in USA is you've got these hot pots of, these hotbeds of cricket, which are all over, all over the country. So it's very hard to concentrate yeah. the talent, which means you don't, the domestic cricket is, is not as good as it should be because the talent is not as concentrated. Whereas in, if that was in Ireland, it should be much easier to, divides an inter, interpro style system and no one's more than four or five hours away from so yeah the geography of, of usa does actually present some some bits and big challenges um but yeah namibia is interesting yeah have they kind of done a, a, a new zealand are they trying to do um some good signs there Ireland have actually been very explicit in saying we want we, you know they've, they've done a lot of, of work with um new zealand cricket and actually studying their governance and and you know and going over there and trying to Trying, trying to mimic things very explicitly, including having a, a number of New Zealand figures actually go on go and work in, in Ireland. So they've they've looked at whether that's they've they've kind of cited that as a gold standard as, as well. Um, and I think it's yeah, I think each country is 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 its own strengths, its own challenges, and so on. So you can't just take one template and plonk it everywhere. But I think New Zealand is probably as good a place um, as anywhere for everyone else to start and then, and then kind of tailor it 
you know, more to their individual needs and, and what's actually possible as well. Well, part three talks about women's cricket. Um, well, part two and three, I think. Um, but my yeah, question was kind of yeah. more, you know, what, what, so, so how do you see Thailand going in that kind of, has that a, a model? And then kind of a bit more broadly, do you think cricket, women's cricket was better without the ICC? Because there's been a lot of chat about that recently. Yeah, so the Thailand story obviously is in an amazing story. Um, we've seen them, uh, you know, in the, the Asia Cup now do, doing, they've got to the, the last four for the first time ever. Um, so it's, it's only developing, but um, there's a couple of lessons, I think. Well, you know, you get more bang for your buck in, 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 in women's cricket. Um, your investors like to go to go further, which is, you know, the rationale for Brazil introducing their professional contracts in, in women's cricket because um, they've, they've realized they've got more chance of climbing the ladder. But the, the big problem with this strategy, unfortunately, remains that um, funding for uh, for national boards for the ICC relay, remains almost entirely dependent in reality on, on men's teams. So you have a, a weird situation where you um, oh, you look at Thailand, actually. Thailand and Afghanistan is a great example where Thailand have no chance of getting full member states at, at the moment. Um, whereas Afghanistan obviously don't really have a function, they don't have a, a women's team at all. Um, so if you think of the equivalent level, they're both top 10, top 12 in 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 uh, any of the men's or women's games. So if women's cricket was genuinely put on, on a par by the ICC, then time would, would have as much case for being a full member now as Afghanistan do. So yeah, that, there's clearly a lot that needs to, to, to change there. And I, I, we do talk about this in the book. I think women's cricket... There is a real worry, actually, that um, as a country with the the most cash, as they belatedly begin to invest in it properly, um, the gap of women's cricket could actually increase at a really alarming rate. Um, And this is a a real problem. I think we we suggest that actually the ICC, if, if you looked at what what they could do with with not very much money, it's it's a lot. You know, I'm I'm think you know we we suggest. For fifty million, for fifty million million US dollars a year, um, we think the ICC um, could have a system which basically gives something like 100, 150 professional contracts to to players around the world, um, and and basically means that you can be professional from whatever from whatever country and and creates a kind of infrastructure there, um, rather than having a situation where. You know, women's cricket is going to be transformed in India when the IPL comes, and and which which is great, but actually the situation we're, we're you know we're we're seeing the, the trend of players um, moving countries just as we've from associates to full members we're seeing that a lot in women's cricket as just as we've we've seen in, men, in men's cricket. So the danger of women's cricket basically repeats all the mistakes that the men's game has made, and there's a lot of mistakes to repeat. Uh, yeah, it's interesting looking at the likes of someone like Lee Kasparik who went from Scotland to New Zealand and then missed out on a on a World Cup squad and has essentially sort of left herself in in this awkward space where she doesn't really know where she fits. I mean, it's good that there are opportunities for domestic players in in some respect to to impart and impact uh, associate cricket to you know some sort of degree but yeah you you raise a really good point you know if they're just going to make the same mistakes that that men's cricket over the years has made then yeah you kind of worry as to as to what the kind of fate 
uh, of women women's cricket is. And, and Thailand, we're kind of seeing now, we're worried that they've reached this peak. And at the Asia Cup at the moment, we've noticed that maybe in, in our view, at least, there's been a little bit of a stagnation. It's just a case now of, of what comes next. You know, you've come so far, be terrible if if all this effort was put in only for you know the next crop and the next generation not to quite make the same impact at, at international level but i suppose you know that's that's an internal problem i'm um, looking towards the, the the t20 world cup and uh the, the first round was still sort of stuck with a what is essentially a quasi qualifier yeah. in in all sort of senses we've got two really competitive groups you know one group in, in geelong uh, where you know the likes of of Namibia and and the Dutch will probably fight for a, a spot there behind Sri Lanka, maybe UAE as well will probably play a, a key part in that. You know whether or not they can sort of hit the ground running. And then you look to the other group and you see Zimbabwe actually joining back into the yeah the, the race again after suspension. So to bring it, I guess to to what we're all to what you're kind of here for at the moment in Australia, looking at at, at the World Cup, Zimbabwe back. The competition is 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 back, and it, and it means ultimately that we're going to see a pretty closely fought first round of the T Twenty World Cup. Yeah, so I'll be in Hobart, and I think that that group, you know, you could have a very messy group where everyone everyone wins at least one one game, and teams are taking games off each other, and it goes on to run rate or whatever, and you might have some some washouts thrown in, into the mix as well. So it could be, yeah, that that's um yeah, it's a really well poised group. I think probably no. I think it's probably fair to say that in, in kind of ICC history, there's no game that's been consistently so incredibly tense as Zimbabwe v, v Ireland. Um, and I think that 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 game could, could shape up to be to be very very similar. Of course, it was in Hobart. Yeah, it was Hobart when they played 2015 when on won by by five runs, I think. Um, and yeah, it could see the same result this time. So I think I actually think, think Scotland looked probably just about the weakest group, uh, the weakest team in, in that group. But equally, you know, they beat Bangladesh. Last last year, and you know, Hobart the ball ball nipping around could could suit them as well. Um, I would say probably uh, maybe Ireland to just sneak sneak through with West Indies, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's a, a yeah West Indies they could well lose a game as well. Um, I think I just favour Ireland to beat Zimbabwe, but yeah, that that game's a bit of a, a coin toss. Um, oh. But it's, it's just, I think Ireland are in, are in a better place in the year than the year ago. They just only cricket has. I think made some some strides forward. Um, you know, traditionally it's been kind of their their worst format as we know. But um, I think I think that their T Twenty game is in a slightly better state now. Um, and in yeah, in in Geelong, I mean, Sri Lanka with their you always look at with a kind of qualifier group, kind of a bold, a very bowling attack like Sri Lanka have gives them so many tools. And actually, that's why Sri Lanka have consistently had a very good record against associates they've been ruthless against associates historically if if bangladesh were in were in geelong i tell you i yeah pretty good chance they wouldn't they wouldn't go through but bangladesh would we, we i know you talk a lot about the problems of, of ranking system i think bangladesh exposes very well because they kind of very shrewdly they produce some ragging pitches against zine and australia last year which was both terrible preparation for the world cup and uae but also ensure that they qualify for this World Cup, the Super 12s automatically. Um, and yeah, so Bangladesh were there instead of Sri Lanka, I think there was a there'd be a good chance they, they wouldn't wouldn't progress. So if Bangladesh were there instead of West Indies, you know, they could be, be losing all, all three games even. Um yeah, I, I would probably back the Dutch just over Namibia. I think the Dutch are in it, like they've had their the huge amount of cricket they've had over the their home summer. I know a lot of it wasn't their full strength team for 
uh, because counties and stone run releasing players but even so i think that's that's given them a pretty good base and actually a lot of players have good experience in australia and new zealand as well so i would yeah i'd, I'd bat them just about against namibia and i think they won't be getting bowled out for 44 by sri lanka again as well as mainstream as you are these days, Tim, you can definitely tell you're emerging an emerging cricket man at heart. It's uh, it's always heartening hearing hearing from from someone of your gravitas talking about the emerging game in such depth. Uh, the book is Cricketomics: The Anatomy of Modern Cricket. I think the general rule of thumb is all good bookstores, unless there are sort of uh, independent places or websites that you would probably prefer them being sold. Unless you know you have any objection to what I've just said there. No, that's that's great. Um, it's not a good book sort of it doesn't have this book in it. So <laughs> that's that's the best way to put it. That and finally, the definition of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and as per emerging cricket custom, we can't let you go without asking you, Tim Wigmore, if there was a law in cricket or perhaps a playing condition uh, that you would change in the game. I know we've got a number of playing conditions changing uh, coming up for the the T Twenty World Cup, or you know, applied for the first time post October one. But you know, if you were uh, running the game, uh, what would you what would you change about it? Let's let's go big. Let's abolish the distinction between full members and associates, and have everyone get, uh-huh. everyone, get ICC, everyone get their everyone get their ICC coin based on the proper transparent scorecard system. Yes, I mean, well, that's another. We, we all read it anyway, right? System. So mm. <laughs> we we all, we've all got the copies. We've all got the PDFs. I mean, might as well just put it out to the world. Tim Weewell, thank you so much for joining us. I know we before said maybe 20, 25 minutes. We ended up going over 40. Um, pretty on brand for the Emerging Cricket Podcast, it must be said, but so good to, to listen and hang on every word. Congratulations on the book. It's a cracker. Uh, make sure that you fill it up uh, maybe with a Christmas stocking coming up. Christmas isn't far away either as well. So anyone um, with a passion for this will, will certainly enjoy it. But once again, thank you for joining us on the pod, Tim. Cheers, guys. Great to be on.